This is the Humanist Report with Mike Figueredo. This podcast is sponsored by viewers like you on Patreon through PayPal donations with YouTube memberships and Twitch subscriptions. To support the show, go to patreon.com forward slash humanist report or become a member by clicking the join button underneath any one of our videos on YouTube. Members get early access to most videos and get to participate in monthly Zoom hangouts with Mike. Here's the biggest stories we talked about this week on The Humanist Report. Enjoy the show. That was Texas Governor Greg Abbott being booed at the Robb Elementary School Memorial Site in Uvalde, Texas, less than a week after the mass shooting took place. Now, his constituents absolutely have a right to be angry. And Greg Abbott should feel bad because before he signaled his intent to do something, because I'm sure by now he knows that the blood is on his hands because... He's enabled this with his laws, but each time he's had an opportunity to actually do the right thing. What did he do? Well, like the coward that he is, he refused to act. And rather than doing any gun reform at all, he signed laws that expanded gun ownership even more. So as the Texas Tribune explains, when a then 17 year old student killed 10 people and injured 13 more in an art classroom in Santa Fe near Houston in 2018, Abbott called on state lawmakers to consider a red flag law that would allow state courts to take firearms away from a person who presents a danger to themselves or others. Seems reasonable, right? A few months later, he then backed away from the idea after Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick and gun rights activists drew a hard line against it. The state ended up passing laws more focused on boosting mental health resources and giving teachers more access to guns on public school campuses. In August 2019, after 23 people were killed by an avowed racist at an El Paso Walmart, and then a few weeks later, seven more people were killed in a shooting spree in Midland and Odessa, Abbott and Patrick discussed expanding background checks to include stranger to stranger gun sales by the end of the next legislative session in 2021 patrick had gone silent on the issue and the legislature instead passed a bill long sought by gun rights advocates that allows texans to openly carry a handgun without a permit so that right there is why his constituents are angry that's why they're calling him a murderer that's why they're saying he has blood on his hands that's why they're booing him because He's had opportunities to take action. He knows what needs to be done, but he's gone in the opposite direction. And that's not all that he did. We're not even scratching the surface. In that same 2021 legislative session, this is what he passed. Abbott signed the Second Amendment Sanctuary Act, which forbids local agencies from enforcing new federal gun rules. Further, government agencies in the state, including cities, counties, and school districts, are banned from signing contracts with businesses that discriminate against the firearm industry. So every single person, their right to boo him. If I were in Texas, I would be booing him too. Because, you know, for him to show up for this photo op after he enabled this with the blood on his hands, I mean, it's it's ridiculous. He should be ashamed to show his face. But 
he's brazen. And uh, they also, uh, just last year, in the same 2021 legislative session where they drastically expanded uh, gun ownership even for crazy people, uh, they made it so that way you can buy a gun or get a gun license if you're 18 instead of 21. Now, you have to prove that you're in a situation where you have to protect yourself if, for example, you are in a domestic abuse situation, but it's the state of Texas, so nobody expects the regulations to be stringent at all. And that law in particular specifically allowed the shooter to legally purchase a gun because just days after he turned 18, that's what he did. He bought an AR-15. His laws enabled the mass shooting. That's a fact. Now, it's not just that he should be booed, when he talks about this issue or confronted when he holds press conferences about gun violence in his state, everywhere he goes, he should be protested. You know how Ted Cruz last week was confronted by someone in a restaurant? That should happen every single time. These Republicans should not be allowed to show their faces in public without a citizen politely confronting them because what they've done has enabled mass death in this country. Now, to be fair, it's not just Greg Abbott. Other politicians from Texas have done the same thing. Ted Cruz, but the representative of that district, Representative Tony Gonzalez, a Republican, he won't even answer the question as to why he thinks it's permissible for an 18-year-old to be able to buy a gun when you can't even purchase alcohol legally in the state of Texas. Take a look. You can't buy a beer when you're 18 years old. Why do you need to be able to buy an assault rifle? You know, I think part of the conversation, we have to be unified. This country is not unified. I want to go back to my original question. Why does an 18-year-old in Texas need to be able to buy an assault rifle? The reality is this isn't a new topic. There has been a lot of legislation that's been out there. You haven't answered my question, though. Why does an 18-year-old need an AR-15 in the state of Texas? So this is how the legislative process works, is Congress determines the laws. Right now, we have a Congress that won't talk to one another. There's so much rhetoric and hate. So in the state of Texas, you can't legally purchase alcohol until you're 21. Uh, you can't even purchase legal weed in the state ever, but yet you can purchase a gun when you turn 18. And there are literally laws on the book that prevent discrimination against the gun industry. But yet this is the pro-freedom state. Are you serious? Absolute insanity. Now, I don't expect any state or federal action right now congress is literally on vacation for memorial day they have the week off isn't that insane to you after a mass shooting they're all taking a break when they should be acting right now now that there's momentum now that there's a sense of urgency they should be acting but they're on a recess isn't that insane now I don't expect action, as I stated, but I do want to leave you with a little bit of hopium. So at the NRI convention that took place just days after the shooting, there were thousands and thousands of people gathered outside of the convention center, and they had a very strong message to these politicians who continue to take this blood money from the NRA and the gun industry, more broadly speaking. But take a look. This video was shared from David Hogg, and um, hopefully this puts a smile on your face because this is the one thing that gave me a little bit of hope. You know, after that horrible week where we were all trying to deal with this horrific tragedy.
So we already know that Joe Biden isn't going to be canceling more than $10,000 of student debts, and we keep getting announcements about how he's getting closer to making a decision, but each time we hear news about what he's going to do, it seems to get worse. So the latest is that he's apparently going to be doing $10,000 in cancellation of student debt via executive order, but it's going to be means tested. How much? He doesn't necessarily know when this is going to happen. Not too sure about that either. So as Insider explains, though details remain in flux, the White House is inching towards providing $10,000 in debt relief for singles earning $150,000 and below, along with couples earning $300,000 and under. Under those parameters, roughly 97% of borrowers would qualify in an apparent attempt to keep relief narrowly targeted for those in default. Yeah, so there's a number of reasons why this should not be means tested, but the most important one is that means testing this program could kneecap the entire program and actually lead to people who need it the most losing out on this $10,000. As Politico explains, the Education Department doesn't have individual income information for most of the 45 million Americans who have federal student loans. The Internal Revenue Service has relied on Americans' prior year tax information to dole out benefits tied to income, such as stimulus checks and Democrats' expanded child tax credit payments. The Education Department, by contrast, does not have access to that trove of income data. Federal law tightly restricts how the IRS can share taxpayer information with other agencies. The result, education department officials have concluded, is that the agency is unable to cancel federal student loans based on a borrower's income level without requiring some action from the borrower. Department officials have told the White House they would need to set up some sort of application process to determine whether borrowers qualify for relief according to the people familiar with the discussions. That added layer of bureaucracy will likely take longer for the education department to implement compared with across-the-board forgiveness, and it would mean that borrowers would miss out on the benefit if they don't know to sign up for or apply for it. So they're actually going to make it more difficult for lower income people to get their student debt canceled, make them jump through hoops, also that way he can maybe fend off some criticism. I mean, you're going to get criticism regardless, but all you're trying to do is appease people who don't want any student debt cancellation, and you're making it more difficult for the people who you're trying to help, assuming that $10,000 would be helpful at all. And AOC makes this point as well, and she explains why it's not a good idea to means test this. $10,000 means tested forgiveness is just enough to anger the people against it and the people who need forgiveness the most. $10,000 relieves most the people who owe the least. What relief is there for the most desperate? For them, interest will undo that $10,000 fast. We can do better. And she's absolutely right about that. I will gladly take the $10,000. Let me be very clear. I'll take it. It's better than nothing. It's the most that we've gotten from the federal government before. But that $10,000 isn't even going to wipe out my interest that I've accumulated since I've taken on these student loans. So it's not going to make us any more likely of paying off student debt. And also, it's a little bit insulting for the government to cancel $10,000 via executive order and communicate to people that they have the capacity to do this and Biden has the authority to do this, but he's choosing not to. He is deliberately keeping you in debt for no reason. He can wipe it out, but he's saying, mm, I'm not going to do that. It's just, it's ridiculous. Now, another issue that needs to be addressed is the interest rates on these student loans. Even more centrist Democratic Party senators like Michael Bennett have called on Biden to reduce the interest rate to 0% for student loan borrowers, so that way they actually have a chance at paying them off if you're not going to cancel them. 
this is important because there are so many people have shared online that they've already paid back more than they've originally borrowed, but they owe more because of the interest rates. Now, we know that the government can do this. We know that Biden has the authority to do this because we just saw them do it with PPP loans. You know, this was supposed to be something with the CARES Act that helped small businesses during a global pandemic. The problem was that a lot of wealthy individuals and influencers like Mr. Beast on YouTube took advantage of this. Podcast hosts took advantage of this. And it was a zero interest loan. And then what did the government end up doing? Canceling it. So you have uh, podcasts on Twitter, like Mueller, she wrote, talking about how, you know, don't you dare be angry if Biden only canceled $10,000 in student debt. Meanwhile, this individual took out a $52,000 PPP loan, zero interest, by the way, and then it was forgiven by the federal government. And then this person is saying, well, don't you dare be mad at Biden. Don't you dare let him down. I mean, so when can we be mad at Democrats? Is it ever permissible for us to say that they're not doing enough? Because they're very clearly not doing enough. As Derek Johnson put it, this is basically Biden pouring a bucket of ice water on a forest fire. Like, you're not going to do anything to stop the forest fire and the fire will continue to spread. And speaking of Derek Johnson, I wanted to go to the point that he makes about this because many economists are saying that canceling student debt is one of the main ways you can reduce the racial wealth gap. And yet people who are against this are framing it as if it's some sort of a giveaway to the rich, which is incredibly preposterous and dishonest. So Derek Johnson explains, black Americans are the only people who have student debt higher than their median annual income. $10,000 in cancellation would not place their student debt lower than their annual income. Today, the average white family has roughly 10 times the amount of wealth as the average black family, while white college graduates have over seven times more wealth than black college graduates. Black borrowers typically owe 50% more in student debt upon graduation than their white peers. Four years after graduation, this gap increases to 100%. On average, black borrowers have nearly $53,000 in student loan debt. Four years after graduation, almost twice as much as their white counterparts. 37.5% of black borrowers will default at some point compared to 12.4% of white borrowers. But yet, if you listen to the mainstream media, Chuck Todd, if you watch Real Time with Bill Maher, they'll claim that this is some sort of a giveaway to the rich because if you went to college, you're definitely rich. Yes, every single person who went to college is rich. This is such a stupid talking point because the people who are rich, they went to Ivy League schools and the rich people didn't take out student loans. Those of us who took out student loans did so because that was the only way we were able to go to college. And in this economy, we were told that the way that we can get a good paying job and make a livable wage is to get an education. And yet you have many people with degrees that are essentially useless at this point. That's not me saying that education isn't intrinsically valuable, but the degrees don't go as, as far in this day and age. They're comparable to high school education. Um, but yet, you know, all these things we were told were lies. Now, the federal government who led us astray is just letting us suffer. And they're doing $10,000 in cancellation when they could do more. Previously, Biden said, you know, I don't know that I have the authority to do that. But he's going to demonstrate to everyone that he has the authority to cancel student debt. But he's just going to cancel $10,000. He's going to make sure that it's not enough to alleviate the suffering. He's just going to do the bare minimum. So you hopefully stay satisfied. And he's going to learn very quickly that this is insufficient. And he has to do more if he's serious about letting people pay off this debt. I mean, again, if you're not going to cancel student debt, which you should at least 
cut the interest rate to 0%. But I mean, we're talking about the bare minimum. This is barely crumbs that he's giving to people who are currently burdened with student debt. Imagine what people could do if they had their student debt canceled. They could purchase homes, purchase cars, start families for the first times. So he could unsettle this entire generation and Gen Z to be clear, millennials and Gen Z. He could unsettle these two generations of student debt. And this isn't the only two generations, Gen X and some boomers have uh, student debt too. But he's just not going to do it because it's Joe Biden. And why do something that's incredibly popular when you could just not do anything or do the bare minimum and I guess win from that. I just I, I'm so I'm so confused by the strategy of Democrats and Joe Biden, but that's because they don't really have a cohesive strategy. They're just doing the bare minimum, keeping those seats warm for Republicans until they inevitably take back power because Democrats just haven't done enough and voters will en masse stay home, which is something that's horrifying considering the fascistic anti-democratic threat that the Republican Party poses. But this is the situation in the country, and it's just really uh, frustrating. The chair recognizes the gentleman at microphone 1A. Thank you. Uh, my name is Jason Selvig, and I'm from West Palm Beach, Florida. And I would like to say that I am sick and tired of the left-wing media, and frankly, people in this room today, spreading misinformation about Wayne LaPierre. Whenever there's a mass shooting, they all say that Wayne LaPierre isn't doing enough to stop these mass shootings and even implying that Wayne LaPierre has played a part in making it easier for these shooters to, to get guns, to get weapons. You, you heard it after Las Vegas. You heard it after Pulse nightclub in Orlando. You heard it after Columbine. You, you, you heard it after Parkland. You heard it after Virginia Tech. You heard it after Sandy Hook. You heard it after El Paso. You heard it after Buffalo. You kept hearing that Wayne LaPierre isn't doing enough. And frankly, that's not true. The NRA, under Wayne LaPierre's leadership, has provided thoughts and prayers to the victims and their families. And, and maybe these mass shootings would stop happening if, if we all thought a little bit more and we prayed a little bit more. So I'm, I'm asking everyone in this room to think, to pray. Give your thoughts and your prayers and your thoughts and your prayers and your prayers and your thoughts and if we give enough of these thoughts and these prayers, these mass shootings will stop. So I, I want to thank you, Wayne LaPierre, for all your thoughts and all your prayers. Thank you. <laughs> 
that happened last week at the NRA convention in Houston. And the crowd, as you saw, was completely oblivious. In fact, I don't even know if Wayne LaPierre realized that he was being trolled by a comedian. Now, for those of you unfamiliar with that comedian, this is a viral TikTok star. Him and his partner go by The Good Liars. And this is a comedic duo that trolls politicians all the time, similar to Walter Masterson. And they're brilliant. So I'll link you to their YouTube channel and Twitter down below if you want to follow them. Definitely check them out. But I love things like this because it shows you in a satirical way how absurd the conversation in this country is with respect to guns. Now, to be fair, Wayne LaPierre isn't the only individual who's offering thoughts and prayers. As you all saw last week, Republicans en masse who were bought off by the NRA were offering thoughts and prayers as if that was some sort of a solution to this problem. Now, since 1990, the NRA has given over $23 million to politicians and spent nearly $64 million on lobbying since 1998. And just in 2019 and 2020, they've spent millions on lobbying. So this is why they're so influential. And even if the power of the NRA has waned over the years, they still are the main authority when it comes to gun rights in this country. And even calling it gun rights feels like a misnomer because what they want is gun anarchy. And that's what they bribe politicians to enact or to perpetuate in this country. Uh, but they're not the only interest group, to be clear. There are other more insane organizations, believe it or not, like Gun Owners of America that has pushed the NRA to the right on this particular issue. And also, it's not just interest groups. There are gun manufacturers who bribe politicians and make sure that any restrictions that might cut down on their profits don't get enacted into law. So that's why we're in this current situation. Now, you might think at some point that the NRA is going to reflect and at least for optics, even if they don't care about children dying, maybe they could pretend to just so they don't look as bad. And so that way there's not as much, uh, much attention directed at this organization. But no, just a couple of days ago, they signaled that they're not turning back. NBC News reports the National Rifle Association's board of directors voted Monday to reelect longtime CEO Wayne LaPierre, signaling that the gun rights group isn't changing direction despite a rise in mass shootings and its own internal turmoil. LaPierre has been in charge of the NRA's day-to-day -day operations since 1991 and has shaped its no-compromise approach to lobbying against gun control even after New York's Attorney General accused him of using the group as his personal piggy bank. The NRA said in a statement that the vote was almost unanimous as a rival candidate, former Republican Congressman Alan West, received support from only one board member. LaPierre's position atop the NRA has been threatened by allegations that he used its money for personal expenses, including flights to the Bahamas on private jets. The NRA filed for bankruptcy last year, but a judge rejected the filing, ruling that it was financially sound and was using the bankruptcy process in bad faith to avoid scrutiny from New York authorities. New York Attorney General Letitia James, a Democrat, is seeking LaPierre's ouster in a lawsuit she filed in 2020 over his expenses, alleged gifts from vendors, and alleged no-show contracts for associates. Now think about how insane this organization is. Wayne LaPierre is under investigation by the New York Attorney General for allegedly using the NRA as his own personal piggy bank, taking money, membership fees, donations that the NRA gets, and using it for himself, and yet the board of directors said, let's keep him in power. Now, one might think that corruption is bad because it shows a lack of moral character at a minimum, but the problem is that this organization is so disgusting that they probably see his lack of moral character as a benefit and not some sort of a character flaw because in order to have this position of power, you have to essentially be ruthless and have 
no moral compass whatsoever and, and turn a blind eye to bloodshed even when it happens in elementary schools because of lax gun laws that you lobbied for for decades. It, it's absolutely ridiculous. Now, one more thing that needs to be spoken about is how even if the NRA voted for Alan West or someone else who wasn't as extreme in their gun anarchy views, the problem is that things probably still wouldn't change, honestly, because of the climate in this country. We have interest groups who are competing to be the top gun lobbyer in America. So anytime the NRA has signaled support for just modest gun reforms, Gun Owners of America, a competing interest group, well, what do they do? They send out emails to all of their donors and members and they say the NRA, they're getting cucked by the Republicans and Democrats in Congress. And if you really want to support the true advocates for guns, then you've got to support us. So if they even choose to try to be somewhat reasonable, well, gun owners of America will step in and take the members that they lose. And they could lose that top spot. And they don't want to lose that spot because, you know, they want to keep that money. Now, another thing that might help is if these interest groups and lobbyists didn't have as much power over politicians. But the, but the problem is that our democracy isn't a democracy. It's not. It's a plutocracy. A 2014 Princeton University study by Drs. Gillens and Page found that normal citizens, they have a statistically insignificant impact on policy outcomes, whereas elites and interest groups, they actually dictate what policies become law or, in this instance, what policies do not become law. What bills that are proposed never see the light of day. And I sound like a broken record because if you've been watching the show for a while, I talk about that study all the time. But it is the most important study, arguably, because it shows why our political climate currently is just not conducive to any positive or progressive change at all. So since our political system is so corrupt, since all politicians in the Republican Party and some Democrats have been bought, bought off by the NRA, at a minimum, we can at least be somewhat satisfied watching comedians troll these ghouls who have established this situation, this climate where kids essentially have to go to school in war zones. It's truly just ridiculous, but this is the state of American politics, unfortunately. This story really demonstrates everything wrong with the Democratic Party. So Joe Biden, the president of the United States, the most powerful man on the planet, for those of you unaware, just signaled to folks that he can't do anything about gun control. On, As Alexander Bolton of The Hill explains, President Biden said Monday that it's up to Congress to outlaw assault weapons and strengthen background checks for gun sales, telling reporters, I can't dictate this stuff. Quote, I can do the things I've done and any executive action I can take, I'll continue to take. But I can't outlaw a weapon. I can't change a background check. I can't do that, Biden said after stepping off Marine One on the South Lawn of the White House. Asked if he is optimistic for getting a deal to address gun violence after Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell said last week that he had tapped Senator John Cornyn to negotiate with Democrats. Biden replied, I don't know. Quote, McConnell is a rational Republican. Cornyn is as well, he said. I think there's a recognition on their part that they, we can't continue like this. We can't do this. Now, this is the best part. Biden and McConnell successfully negotiated several deals when Biden was vice president, most notably a deal to keep many of the George W. Bush era tax cuts in place and avoid the so-called fiscal cliff. 
cliff at the start of 2013. But the president has made clear in recent days that Senate Democrats led by Senator Chris Murphy will handle the negotiations on Capitol Hill over gun control. Now, yes, it is true that the president cannot introduce legislation. I think that most reasonable people acknowledge that. He has to sign the bills that Congress passes into law. But as the president, you have power and influence, right? Where you lack power, some might argue you have the influence to get things accomplished, to get the ball rolling in a particular direction. So you can make this an issue. You can raise the salience of this issue. You can say this bill that Democrats have passed in the House is not being voted on in the Senate. So protests, call up your member of Congress. You can call on Congress as president to put a particular bill on your desk. But Biden doesn't think he has any power as president. Like, I'm not sure why he chose to run for president if he's not going to exercise the power that he has. Again, as president, your power isn't unlimited, but your influence is virtually limitless. You can hold a press conference every single day until something gets passed, calling on Republicans, naming Manchin and Cinema in your party for refusing to lift a filibuster in order to get gun reform accomplished, but he won't do that. And I found one of the best tweets I've ever seen with regard to Democratic Party leadership. Jonathan Larson tweets, I don't think congressional Democrats understand that voters see them as the cops standing around outside the school. And that might be the most accurate tweet I've ever seen because the Democratic Party, when they refuse to act, when they're incompetent, you know, that's one thing, but sometimes they do worse. Like we're talking about Biden currently, but Democratic Party leadership in the House, Nancy Pelosi, Steny Hoyer, Jim Clyburn, they actually were campaigning for someone who got an A rating from the NRA. I'm of course talking about Henry Cuellar. This is an anti-choice Democrat in Texas, and he also is a gun nut. He advocates for gun anarchy. He's fiscally conservative, socially conservative. There's no reason any Democrat would want to support him. The only reason why you'd support him if you're Nancy Pelosi is so that way you can become the Speaker of the House. If there's more Democrats, then you get the gavel, right? But functionally speaking, Henry Cuellar is indistinguishable from a Republican, but yet House leadership chose to endorse and campaign for Henry Cuellar over a progressive woman who would want to enact gun reform legislation. So this is Democratic Party leadership. They are incompetent at best, but at worst, they help out the opposition. They pretend as if Republicans are good faith actors when time and again, they've spit in the faces of Democratic Party leaders and you know, Democrats turn right back around and say, more please. I guess that they're masochists at this point. And I love that Joe Biden says that Mitch McConnell is reasonable. This is an individual who stole two Supreme Court seats from the Democratic Party. When you were vice president, he wouldn't let Obama fulfill his constitutional duty as president and appoint a new Supreme Court justice. And a week before an election, they rushed through Amy Coney Barrett's confirmation after Ruth Bader Ginsburg died. And yet you're saying, oh, this individual is reasonable. I mean, to, to say that Mitch McConnell is reasonable isn't just incorrect, but it legitimizes this individual who has done everything in his power to turn the Democratic Party into um, this toothless organization that is incapable of governing. And, and it's just, it's shocking that they continue to do this to themselves because you'd think that they'd have some like self-worth and they think, okay, we kind of look foolish at this point, right? But no, so Biden is going to leave it all up to Senate Democrats 
And, you know, they're talking a big game right now, but will anything get accomplished? No, because it's not going to get accomplished so long as you try to pass it with the 60 vote majority. You have to do it either using budget reconciliation or by getting rid of the filibuster and passing it with all 50 Democrats. But the problem is that uh, Manchin refuses to call out Manchin and Cinema. Biden refuses to name them and say, we could get this done, but these two members of my party, they're blocking it. Call their office, protest. He's not going to do anything because he's worthless as a president. And honestly, I don't know what he's even doing in the White House. Like, what are, what are you doing, Joe? Just resign if you don't want to be the president. You ran for this job, you wanted the job, and you have it now. So if you're not going to act, then I just, I don't even know what to say. Just, just go home. President Trump never asked me, and I need to tell him that. He never asked. I, you know, I heard it all on television that he's going to ask Hersher, he's saying Hersher to run. President Trump never came out as Hersher, will you run for that Senate really? seat? Hersher run for this? He never asked. So I'm mad at him because he never asked, but he's taking credit that he asked. Before all this started coming about, my wife and I went with Pastor Tony Evans at Oak Cliff Bible Fellowship, uh -huh. and we went into prayer. We went into prayer, and I prayed about it. And to be honest with you, I was praying that God would bring somebody else. I'm like, I, I, I'm happy. My life is doing well. I got a company, man. I'm rolling. But I love the Lord Jesus. Yeah. And because Jesus politely asked him to run, well, Herschel Walker decided to answer the call. Yeah. So we'll talk about that in a second. But for those of you unaware, that is a U.S. Senate candidate who will be facing off against Democrat incumbent Raphael Warnock this November. And as you saw, he's very mad that Donald Trump took credit for encouraging him to run. But I've got to say, I don't know what he's talking about because all of the things that I can find Trump saying, quotes, uh, with regard to Herschel Walker, they don't indicate that he's taking credit for Herschel Walker deciding to run. So before Walker announced his run, this is what Trump said about him. Quote, he told me he's going to, and I think he will. I had dinner with him a week ago. He's a great guy. He's a patriot, and he's a very loyal person. He's a very strong person. They love him in Georgia, I'll tell you, Trump said. Now, Trump runs his mouth constantly, so it's possible that during some interview, Trump quickly slipped it in and took credit for convincing Herschel Walker to run, but I can't find evidence of this. Perhaps Trump said that Herschel Walker won because of his endorsement, but that's not what Herschel Walker is saying there. Herschel Walker is very clearly saying Trump is taking credit for saying that he got me to run when that's not actually the case. So who convinced Herschel Walker to run? Well, as you saw, he implied that it was Jesus, and I love the way that Ross Story wrote this out. In an interview with Revolt TV host Michael Santiago Render, better known as Killer Mike, Walker revealed that it was God, not Trump, who inspired him to run for the U.S. Senate. Yeah, so that's basically Herschel Walker saying, God convinced me to run, not Donald Trump. So don't take credit for what God did, Donald Trump. Herschel, is God in the room with you right now? Can you see god is he standing over there it's just it's so bizarre to hear adults talk like this right like i'm envisioning him conjuring up this image of god and he thinks that we're gonna believe his own delusions herschel yeah who's there this is god herschel on planet earth in the United States, in the Milky Way galaxy, just making sure that I have the right person here that I created. I want you to run for the US Senate 
in Georgia. But God, I, I don't want to run. This is this is not what I want to do. I'm a successful football player. This is dumb, God. No, Herschel, you must run because you are a true follower, Herschel. But God, there's already a reverend who's in that particular seat. You want me to unseat the reverend? I mean, how can I be a truer follower than him? Just shut the fuck up, Herschel, and do it. <laughs> This is, what, this is what I'm envisioning. I mean, when you say that God convinced you to run, you convinced you to run. You didn't want to, but you felt like you needed to because you could do better than Raphael Warnock, which you can't. Uh, but it's just, this is weird. And, and it's so bizarre to me that he's genuinely upset that God would try to take credit for something or that, excuse me, that Trump would try to take credit for something that God did. Don't ever do that. Okay, Trump, you can criticize everyone, you can attack every single person, you can sexually harass and assault women, multiple women, but don't you dare step on God's toes. Evangelicals in America genuinely, like, they're so difficult to understand because of how insane most of them are. But I've got to say, as insane as Herschel Walker is, something tells me that the more he speaks, the less popular he's going to become with the GOP's base, because later on in that same interview, um, he says something that may be disqualifying among the GOP's base, and it's disqualifying potentially because of how reasonable it is. Yes, you heard me right. Herschel Walker said something reasonable. Take a look. My parents raised me that if something is going wrong, got nothing to do with who I am, what I've done in life, but what I can do to help someone else. Mm -hmm. Right now, there is a problem. There's a problem with the racism. People are calling each other names. Guys, we come so far. Martin Luther King done an incredible job. You know, and right now we're taking things back. And I'm like, guys, we got to come together. And I said, and I told President Trump and Leader McConnell, I said, uh, wait a minute. You endorse me and you endorse me, but I do this. Yeah. I don't know. So you're disavowing Trump publicly and you're speaking out against Trump saying I have to do this my way and not Trump's way. I don't know if the base is going to go for that. And the most problematic thing that he said that is going to trigger the chuds is there's a problem with racism. Right now, we're taking things backwards. And he's absolutely correct about that. But the problem is that the GOP thinks that the problem with racism is hurting them. They think that white people are being discriminated against. And that's not hyperbole. A Yahoo News YouGov poll released last week found that 64% of Republicans either strongly or somewhat agree that white people experience hate or discrimination in this country. So the extent to which you're able to discuss racism as a Republican candidate, um, it, it goes in so far as you're talking about discrimination against white people. But if you're actually going to have a serious conversation about anti-black racism in this country, then the base is going to shut down because they don't want to hear that. I mean, we just learned that most of them agree with the great replacement theory. So, you know, if Herschel Walker is able to win somehow by not pandering to Republicans, um, it'll be encouraging to see, but also disappointing because he's very clearly not qualified compared to Raphael Warnock, who is very qualified, who actually cares and wants to do things to help people. But if Herschel Walker is going to try to run to reform the GOP, I mean, I just, I don't think that that is possible at all. You got the endorsement of someone who catalyzed a global fascist movement because of how racist he was. So I just, I don't know how you're going to do that. But honestly, if this is your goal, Herschel, 
more power to you. But I hope that you don't win because Raphael Warnock is a better senator, objectively speaking, in terms of intelligence and qualifications than you. Um, but there's another thing that he did that's kind of a non-starter for Republicans, at least seemingly. So he endorsed pseudo-gun reform. Now, I call it pseudo-gun reform because it's not actually gun reform, and it's so bad in terms of policy design that I wouldn't even support this. And I support gun reform, pretty vehemently so. But what Herschel Walker is proposing is just absurd. And I think there would be bipartisan distaste for this particular policy. So as Ross Story reports, Herschel Walker calls for creation of federal agency to monitor American social media posts to prevent gun violence. Oh, and I'm sure that that won't be abused at all. I'm sure that the Republicans who you are counting on to vote for you, who already think that social media is discriminating against them, are going to support this. I don't support this. That's too broad. Uh, you can create a federal registry for gun owners. I think that would make sense. But just basically surveilling everyone in the country, that doesn't make sense. That's that's too broad of an approach. That's an abusive approach. You need to narrow the scope because we need to legislate in reality, not based on some random thought that you had at 3 a.m. when you were shitting. I, I just, look, I don't know what to say about Herschel Walker. He's someone who is one of the least qualified candidates. And really, this is something that's true for all celebrities who run for Congress. Donald Trump, Ronald Reagan, the dumbest celebrities get embraced by Republican voters because even if they pretend to not care about Hollywood and celebrities, the second one of them says that they're conservative, they embrace them because they're thirsty for that culture clout. But, you know, Herschel Walker is, is not qualified. So, um... Yeah, we'll leave that there. Herschel Walker is mad at Donald Trump for stepping on God's toes and claiming that he convinced Herschel to run when it indeed was the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, man, whatever. A new NBC News article claims that President Joe Biden is mystified as to why his approval rating is so low and it's bothering him that his approval rating is nearly as bad as Donald Trump's. Now, the entire article is very long, so I'll link to that down below if you want to read the whole thing. But I've taken out the highlights, and I've got to say, um, it's an enlightening article. I guess we'll use that word, uh, because I don't understand how he doesn't understand why he's viewed as unpopular. He's failed to deliver time and again and won't do the bare minimum to help people, won't even push people in his own party, like Manchin and Cinema, won't call them out by name, won't even really call out Republicans, but yet, he doesn't know why he's unpopular as nothing gets done and the country continues to circle the drain. Okay, let's hear him out. Biden is rattled by his sinking approval ratings and is looking to regain voters' confidence that he can provide the sure-handed leadership he promised during the campaign, people close to the president say. Biden has vented to aides about not getting credit from Americans or the news media for actions he believes have helped the country, particularly on the economy. Unemployment rates have dropped to below 4% pre-pandemic 
pre-pandemic levels, but polling indicates most Americans believe the economy is in bad shape. Biden grouses that Republicans aren't getting their share of the blame for a legislative gridlock in Congress while he's repeatedly faulted for not getting his agenda passed. The president has also told his aides he doesn't think enough Democrats go on television to defend him, a particular sore spot in his slumping poll numbers. He's mystified that his approval rating has dropped to a level approaching that of his predecessor, Donald Trump, ranked by historians as one of the worst presidents in history. He's now lower than Trump, and he's really twisted about it, another person close to the White House said. Okay, so there's a lot to unpack here. Uh, first and foremost, it is true that Republicans are culpable partially for gridlock in D.C. if you go by the current rules in the Senate. The problem is that you don't have to go by the current rules in the Senate. You can choose to get rid of the filibuster and pass anything you want by a simple majority. But that has not happened. Now, Biden could blame Manchin and Cinema, and he'd be correct about that. I'd argue that there'd be some other rotating villain that would take their place. It'd be John Tester. It'd be someone else if Manchin or Cinema wasn't obstructing, you know, Biden's own agenda by refusing to get rid of the filibuster or even create carve-outs for specific policies, uh, you know, where you don't have the filibuster. But Biden has exerted no pressure on Manchin and Cinema, And time and again, we see him start a fight, kind of, and then back down immediately. We saw it with voting rights. There was a failure to get rid of the filibuster. You have people like Kirsten Cinema pretending to care so much. I think she was even fake crying on the Senate floor. I could be misremembering that. But making it seem as if she cares so deeply about voting rights and how sacred our democracy is, but yet she won't get rid of the filibuster because that's more important than voting rights. Biden then said, well, you know, it's going to be hard. We might not be able to get this done, but I'm going to fight. And then what did we hear? Nothing. Not a peep from the White House. No fight whatsoever. Going back to last year, Build Back Better. You had Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema dictating everything. And Biden was just sitting back and watching it all unfold, not trying to steer the conversation as president of the United States. The reason why you're unpopular, Joe Biden, is because you're effectively letting a senator from West Virginia be the president, be more powerful than you. You're not calling them out by name, Joe Manchin or Kirsten Sinema. You're not trying to set the agenda. I mean, as the president of the United States, you have political power and you also have the power of influence. You have the power more so than the media, arguably, to set the agenda, but you're not setting the agenda. You're not saying, hey, folks, this crisis needs to be addressed. Let's tackle it. Or if you do say that, there's a vote that fails and then you're like, okay, never mind. So you're not fighting, you're not doing anything, and these crises that you saw when you took office are getting worse. And now you're mystified as to why your approval rating is going down? Is it really that much of a mystery to think that your approval rating was higher when you were delivering to the American people? You had the child tax credit, and you were rightfully bragging about that because that helped families. But now that's gone, and your approval rating dipped. Perhaps there's a causal link between that correlation. But I want to move on, because Biden isn't the only one confused, apparently. Quote, I don't know what's required here, said Representative James Clyburn of South Carolina, whose endorsement in the 2020 Democratic primaries helped rescue Biden's struggling candidacy. But I do know that poll numbers have been stuck where they are for far too long. See, this is why we have so many issues in this country, because the Democratic Party leadership is clueless. I just, I, I don't, I, I don't know. I don't know what's required here. We've tried nothing and we're all out of solutions. 
I mean, I don't know, try anything, try something, try to put people in your party who are obstructing you in check. But I mean, that's not going to happen. James Clyburn is literally supporting anti-choice pro-gun candidates like Henry Cuellar over a progressive woman. So for you to say, oh, well, I just don't know what to do. Maybe step the fuck out of the way, James Clyburn, and things might change in this country. But until he, Nancy Pelosi, and Steny Hoyer get out of power and allow progressives to take over, I mean, you're going to continually see that Democrats aren't very popular because you're not doing anything because anything that you could do would offend your corporate donors. So really, there's this power struggle within the Democratic Party. It's like they have their base who's tugging them in one direction, saying, we want these things. We want universal pre-K. We want a free college. But then their donors are saying, if you do any of that, well, maybe we don't cut the checks next time. And so they go with what their donors want, and then nothing happens. They get more unpopular, and then they think, well, why isn't what we're saying working? We're saying really nice words, and we're saying healthcare should be a right while not doing anything to improve the healthcare crisis in this country, but yet it's not landing with voters. You have to improve their material conditions. I shouldn't have to explain this to politicians who have been in power for decades, but perhaps that's the problem. So uh, I want to get to other reasons why Biden is frustrated. Amid a rolling series of calamities, Biden's feeling lately is that he just can't catch a break. Quote, Biden is frustrated. If it's not one thing, it's another, said a person close to the president. An assumption baked into Biden's candidacy was that he would preside over a smoothly running administration by dint of his decades of experience in public office. Yet there are signs of managerial breakdowns that have angered both him and his party. Beyond policy, Biden is unhappy about a pattern that has developed inside the West Wing. He makes a clear and succinct statement only to have aides rush to explain that he actually meant something else. The so-called cleanup campaign he has told his advisors undermines him and smothers the authenticity that fueled his rise. Worse, it feeds a Republican talking point that he's not fully in command. The issue came to a head when Biden ad-libbed during a speech in Poland that Russian President Vladimir Putin cannot remain in power. Within minutes, Biden's aides tried to walk back his comments, saying he hadn't called for Putin's removal and that U.S. policy was unchanged. Biden was furious that his remarks were being seen as unreliable, arguing that he speaks genuinely and reminding his staff that he's the one who is president. Okay, so we're kind of tackling two different issues at once there. So when it comes to um, all of the issues and he feels like he can't catch a break, this is bound to happen in a society where... A problem pops up and then you either do nothing or if you do address it, you apply a band-aid fix to the solution and then the problem down the road ends up getting worse. So when you do this to a number of issues, the housing crisis, education, student debt, climate change, so on and so forth, it continues to get worse. It's not like these issues go away once you apply that band-aid fix. They continue to grow. And the fact that he doesn't get this is frustrating because you knew what was required with this job. You ran for president telling all of us that you have the experience to bring us together and solve these problems. And yet you're there saying, oh, my God, it's like whack-a-mole of problems. You solve one thing and another thing pops up, except you haven't been solving problems, Joe Biden. You're not doing anything. You're sitting in the White House fucking I don't know what you're doing. Maybe you're playing fucking Nintendo Switch. I don't know. Maybe you're playing chess with Jill, but you're not doing anything. And as these crises worsen, you're just sitting idly by, exerting almost no pressure on Congress, signing a minimal amount of executive orders. 
It's so frustrating. Now, when it comes to his authenticity, um, sure, you can be mad that White House staffers are technically contradicting you when you say things like that, but I'm sorry, they're right and you're wrong. You can't say things like that in public. You can't publicly call for regime change as the president of the United States. You can't publicly say that we committed to defend Taiwan in the event of a Chinese invasion. These are statements that escalate global tensions, and this is something that cannot stand, hence why West Wing staff are saying, no, this is what he meant. Because you're making a mess and they're cleaning it up. You're escalating tensions with nuclear-armed countries and they're cleaning up the mess that you made. So I don't care if you're angry there. Cope and seethe. That's something that's unacceptable and you need to speak more carefully because, again, you are the president. You are the most powerful person in the world. So if you just flippantly say something that we'd go to war with China, that's kind of a big deal. That's a huge deal. That's you being aggressive. Now, one last thing that I want to touch on here. Quote, he shares the view that we haven't landed on a winning midterm message, a third person close to the White House said of the president, and he's putting a lot of pressure on people to figure out what that is. So on one hand, he's saying, I'm the president. The buck stops with me. But on another hand, he's saying, hey, folks, we don't really have a message. Somebody figure out what that is and get back to me. I mean, what a useless president. Maybe you should have thought about what the message would be before you decided to run for president. I mean, we all know that Biden doesn't actually have any interest in governing because he's demonstrated that over the year and a half that he's been president. But he jumped in the race specifically to stop Bernie Sanders from becoming the president. That's why he decided to run. Maybe it's not all the reason, but it definitely was a substantial reason as to why he decided to jump in. But I mean, if you're going to seek out this job as president, perhaps you have a cohesive message. Perhaps you see problems and you address them once you've identified them, but he's done none of that. And he's saying, man, we just don't have a message. Could you not come up with them? Is it really that difficult? I mean, he came up with ultra MAGA all by himself. And this article talks about how that backfired. And then Rytoids began selling shirts that said ultra MAGA on it. So, you know, they, they come up with this message or he comes up with this message. It gets focus group tested. And then it's like, oh, it's a success. And then he runs with that as if that's like some giant idea. Maybe propose a fucking policy prescription. Something. I mean, there are talks that he's going to cancel student debt. You know you need young people, right? The $10,000 isn't sufficient. You're going to piss off people who don't want student debt canceled and piss off people who need student debt to be canceled because it's not enough. So go bigger. Do $50,000. I mean, you should be doing all of it, but fuck, do $25,000. I mean, just try to pretend as if you actually care about the issues that are crippling Americans, but you don't care. And that's the thing. Now, there's also speculation that there's going to be a staff shakeup within the White House. And can you guess who's going to get the axe? Well, it's uh, Ron Klain. He's the one on the chopping block. Now, I'm not necessarily a fan of Ron Klain, but of all of the staffers, I'd argue that he's probably one of the most progressive. So, of course, Biden would consider getting rid of him first. Now, at this point, it's just what's being talked about. These are rumors, so you can't necessarily speak with any certainty that this is going to happen. But it wouldn't be surprising if Biden ditches Ron Klain and goes in the opposite direction and starts to really more explicitly appeal to the mansions and the cinemas of the world. Not that he hasn't already been doing that. And aside from a potential White House staff shakeup, well, there's already been a mass exodus of black staffers. In fact, Politico reports that 21 black staffers have already resigned since Biden took office, claiming they don't get support 
support from their superiors, among other reasons, and also there's no opportunity for upward advancement. So in other words, working at the White House is a dead-end job. I mean, maybe if Joe Biden actually listened to those black staffers, perhaps, I don't know, he'd learn something. It will never happen, but the Democratic Party leadership could prove they actually care about this country by resigning and letting progressives take control. Because when you do progressive things, well, Americans will reward you by liking you. And this was already proven at the beginning of Biden's administration when he was delivering to the American people. When he took COVID seriously, when he doled out $1,200 checks, when the child tax credit was in place. But those things are gone and Americans can see that there's no action. Biden isn't really doing anything. He's not exerting pressure on people within his party who are obstructing his agenda, the things that he says he wants to accomplish. So that's why you're unpopular. If you actually want to become more popular, then you could, I don't know, try. So it's now been one week since the mass shooting at Robb Elementary School in Uvalde, Texas, and I want you to take a moment to just try to guess how many mass shootings have happened since the mass shooting in Uvalde. Just take a moment to think it over. The number is 17. We've had 17 mass shootings since last Tuesday, and most of them took place over Memorial Day weekend, 14 to be exact, and those are the mass shootings that we're gonna focus on in this video, referencing this article from The Hill. Now, you might not have heard about them because our culture has become accustomed to mass shootings. Oftentimes, they go unreported or underreported. Oftentimes, they're not as severe as other mass shootings, so people don't talk about them as much, but make no mistake about it, they are happening very, very frequently, more frequently than people actually know about. So as The Hill reports, more than a dozen mass shootings took place as the U.S. marked Memorial Day. The incidents over the three-day holiday weekend saw nine people killed and 63 injured in the wake of the elementary school shooting in Uvalde, Texas. According to estimates from the Gun Violence Archive, 14 mass shootings took place over the three-day weekend from Saturday to Monday in 10 different states across the country, including California, Michigan, Texas, and Illinois. The watchdog added that there have been 230 American mass shootings in 34 different states States, including Washington, D.C., in the first 150 days of 2022. The online archive of gun violence in the U.S. defines a mass shooting based only on the numeric value of four or more shot or killed, not including the shooter. So, um, we're not going to get to all of these here, but I just kind of want to read off some of these mass shootings and uh, where they took place. So, in Memphis, Tennessee, four people were shot and another person was injured at a car show in North Memphis on Saturday. Colorado Springs, one person was killed and three people were injured at a shooting at a parking lot uh, at a bar in Colorado on Saturday. In Fresno, California, three people were injured and one killed in a shooting. Ongoing investigation, so we don't have details there. Malabar, Florida, four teenagers were injured in a shooting after an argument at a house party. Chattanooga, Tennessee, six teenagers between the ages of 15, uh, 13 and 15 were injured in a shooting on Saturday. On Sunday in Chicago, five people were shot in West Garfield Park in Chicago on Sunday. Taft, Oklahoma, one person was killed and seven people were injured after a shooting took place at a Memorial Day event that saw more than 1,500 people in attendance. In Chicago, four people were wounded and one person was killed in a shooting. Benton Harbor, Michigan, one person was killed, six people were injured after an argument escalated over tickets to a concert. 
That's not all of them here, but I'll link you to the article if you want to read about all of them. But this is happening very, very frequently because the United States has more guns than people. So when you have so much guns in circulation, well, something as simple as an argument between two people can escalate to violence, gun violence, because many people are armed in this country. That's the situation. Now, Republicans will claim that it's not guns, it's uh, mental health, it's doors. But no, it's not just that this happens at elementary schools. This is a common occurrence in the United States. And anyone who tries to scapegoat video games or music or movies or doors or a lack of religion in schools, they're not having an honest conversation. It's the guns. And there are common sense things that we can do to minimize the amount of mass shootings in this country. You're not going to get rid of all mass shootings unless you get rid of guns in society, but that's just not something that's possible. But you can reduce the number of mass shootings if you do simple things. Federal background checks, caps on high-capacity magazines, waiting periods, mandatory gun safety training, mental health screenings before you buy a gun, having to come up with references before you purchase a gun. There are things that you can do that will allow people who want guns to continue to own them and also protect people who don't want to be murdered just while they're at the movie theater or at school. But we're not doing that in this country. Now, currently, Congress is on vacation, so there's no action that will be taken this week. And, you know, there's a lot of people talking currently about how this time it feels different, but I promise you, I had this same thought during Sandy Hook. Well, now is going to be the time to act because surely when children are slaughtered, you can't just stand by and do nothing. But Congress did. And I've watched time and again, mass shooting after mass shooting, Congress do nothing. So when people say that this feels different, when Joe Manchin says this feels different, but yet I won't abolish the filibuster or at least create a carve out to the filibuster so we can pass at least this. But something feels different? No, no, it's the same fucking thing. What we're seeing right now is this hurry up and wait period where politicians, they talk a big game. They change their rhetoric temporarily. Even Fox News has kind of changed their rhetoric, criticizing the cops. Some Republicans like John Voigt are saying maybe we should do this, federal background checks. But I promise you, this is all rhetoric being used specifically to appease people. But after a couple of weeks, when the next crisis occurs in this country, everyone will be distracted, the feelings and emotions will go down, and then politicians will just uh, hope that you forgot that nothing was accomplished. So I hope that I'm wrong, but uh, don't think I'm going to be wrong here. But this will continue to happen, and even when we don't see massive headlines about a, about a mass shooting, it's going to keep happening. Because that's just the American way of life, unfortunately. Politico published an article today that is absolutely chilling because it demonstrates that Donald Trump isn't the only threat within the Republican Party to democracy. Most of them have taken on the mantle of trying to directly attack our democracy. And the way that they're doing it is absolutely systemic, it's savvy, and the scary part is that this could actually work. 
So Politico explains video recordings of Republican Party operatives meeting with grassroots activists provide an inside look at a multi-pronged strategy to target and potentially overturn votes in Democratic precincts, install trained recruits as regular poll workers, and put them in direct contact with party attorneys. The plan, as outlined by a Republican National Committee staffer in Michigan, includes utilizing rules designed to provide political balance among poll workers to install party-trained volunteers prepared to challenge voters at Democratic majority polling places, developing a website to connect those workers to local lawyers, and establishing a network of party-friendly district attorneys who could intervene to block vote counts at certain precincts. Being a poll worker, you just have so many more rights and things you can do to stop something than as a poll challenger, said Matthew Seafried, the RNC's election integrity director from Michigan, stressing the importance of obtaining official designations as poll workers in a meeting with GOP activists in Wayne County last November 6th. It is one of a series of recordings of GOP meetings between summer of 2021 and May of this year obtained by Politico. Backing up those frontline workers, it's going to be an army, Seafried promised, at an October 5th training session. We're going to have more lawyers than we've ever recruited because, let's be honest, that's where it's going to be fought, right? So notice how they look at 2020 and they view that as a learning experience. So what they're doing currently is they're sharpening their blade and they're planning on sticking it right through the heart of democracy. Now you might think, well, what's the big deal? Currently, they're really targeting Michigan uh, as the main swing state. On top of that, you know, poll workers, what's, what's the harm in that, right? Well, the harm is that they're specifically being trained to cause a disruption that might lead to these elections not being certified. And if they see someone who they don't want to vote or who they think looks suspicious, then they have access now to lawyers from the Republican Party to perhaps a friendly district attorney. So there's a lot of ways that they can use this in their advantage. So they know that Trump couldn't steal the election in 2020 because the courts wouldn't let him. But they've changed that or they're in the process of changing that. They're in the process of building a national infrastructure to quite literally steal elections if they don't go their way. Now, the article goes on to explain specifically how they're going to use this to potentially steal elections. Separately, Politico obtained Zoom tapings of Tim Griffin, legal counsel to the Amistad Project, a self-described election integrity group that Donald Trump's former lawyer, Rudy Giuliani, once portrayed as a partner in the Trump campaign's legal efforts to overturn the 2020 election, meeting with activists from multiple states and discussing plans for identifying friendly district attorneys who could stage real-time interventions in local election disputes. This is completely unprecedented in the history of American elections that a political party would be working at this granular level to put a network together, said Nick Penniman, founder and CEO of Issue One, an election watchdog group. It looks like now the Trump forces are going directly after the legal system itself, and that should concern everyone. Penniman also expressed concern about the quick strike networks of lawyers and DAs being created, suggesting that politically motivated poll workers could simply initiate a legal conflict at the poll in place that disrupts voting and then use it as a vehicle for rejecting vote counts from that precinct. Come election day, you create massive failure of certification in Democratic precincts, Penniman said. The real hope is that you can throw the choosing of electors to state legislatures. So stop for a moment. Let that sink in. We know that Trump and his goons legally were trying to do just that in states where he claimed there was fraud, like Arizona, Georgia, 
he was trying to get the state legislatures to send in rogue electors so they subvert the will of voters in those states. And now the GOP, before all of us, is building the legal and political infrastructure necessary to do just that. They're doing this out in the open, folks. Out in the open. And we all acknowledge it, and I'm sure people are already aware that this is something that they're trying to do, but nobody's actually doing much to stop this when this is an actual threat to democracy. I mean, currently, I don't think it's hyperbole to say that democracy is on borrowed time in this country. And this is why voting rights was so important. And the fact that the Democratic Party failed to enact voting reform really could be the death knell in our democracy. Because if you don't address this at the federal level, what's being done at states, then once the GOP retakes power, they've established a framework to where they don't have to give it up. Now, that's not to say that they're just going to get elected and then state, okay, we're done with elections. They're not going to be that overt, but they can more covertly steal democracy by just rigging the system further in their favor. They're already doing it with voter suppression and gerrymandering. So, of course, all they have to do is wait out the Democrats, knowing that they will inevitably not be in power very much longer, and then that's when they pounce. Now, take a look at some of these slides that Politico obtained. So this is from the RNC. It's titled Election Inspector and Poll Challenger Workshop, and the goal is to make it easy to vote and hard to cheat, apparently. But if you go to slide two here, the opposite is true. They're the ones trying to cheat. This is voter intimidation. They're equipping their trained thugs with knowledge needed to challenge voters on the basis of citizenship status or age. And if, you know, that voter wants to challenge that, well, that poll worker will have a lawyer or district attorney waiting on call to assist them. So just stop and think about how this might play out. If one of these Republicans, and most of these people who signed up, by the way, 5,600 have signed up, most of them at this meeting have vocalized their uh, frustration over fraud in the stolen 2020 election. So these are already people who are not living in reality. But imagine if they see someone and they think that's not a citizen because mm, they're brown. I want to see your citizenship papers. Show me proof that you're a citizen. That person could rightfully refuse because obviously that's racial profiling. And then what could happen? Well, they have a legal team at their beck and call. You don't understand how many ways they can use this. They can use this in a plethora of ways and understand that it's not just Trump now. This is the RNC that is doing all of this plotting and scheming to kill democracy in the United States. They couldn't do this before because they weren't necessarily sure if their base would go for it. But what Trump demonstrated to the broader Republican Party is that actually their base is hungry for a power grab. And they would have the legitimacy that they didn't think they would have if they just straight up killed democracy. Because they've been conditioned to think that they are victims. The right has been conditioned to think that the left and the media and everyone is out to get them specifically. So when you get them into this paranoid state, well, they're more susceptible to this idea that this is what we have to do. We have to take over democracy by force. Otherwise, what choice do we have? It's all really, really a huge warning sign. And I just don't feel like people are going to realize it until it happens so you know there is the potential in the foreseeable future within the next five maybe ten years that we're going to have an election and the republican party is actually going to steal that election 
they're going to appoint rogue electors, send them to the Electoral College, and just have them choose who they want to be the president. They're already rigging it at the local level when it comes to Congress, and at the presidential level, the federal level, they're putting in place the legal infrastructure to do what they want. And then when that happens, and when people on the left cry fraud, rightfully so, then they're going to say, oh, well, you told us that we were lying, so you're just lying too, and their base will believe it. So keep a close eye to this and make sure that you continue to exert pressure on Democrats, call your representative, and make sure that they don't forget about the issue of voting rights. It is by far one of the most important issues that will impact American politics in the immediate future. And yes, there are more pressing issues that existentially threaten us, like climate change and whatnot. But if we don't have the power to vote and choose politicians who might want to fight climate change, then we can't address any other issue. So voting rights has to be number one right now. And until Democrats enact this, then we have election theft literally by Republicans to look forward to, or at a minimum, voter intimidation. But they're overall plot it goes much deeper than just voter intimidation they want to disrupt elections cause a ruckus so that way they can send in their own rogue electors it's absolutely troubling and it should be chilling to every single person who knows about this i'll link you to the full story down below So I've stated this before, and it was relatively controversial, but I'm going to say it again. I'm going to double down because I think it is factually correct. When Rush Limbaugh died, his ghost possessed Joe Rogan, <laughs> and Joe Rogan has functionally turned into a right-wing hack. He does as much propaganda as right-wing anti-SJW YouTubers. He repeats all of the talking points that we hear on Fox News. So at this point, he's just a conservative. He's a multimillionaire, so of course he's going to vote with the party who most fights for the interest of his class. Except he's going to push back against critics like myself who claim that he's a conservative and he's going to tell us that he's actually really liberal. Now, when he's going to try to explain what makes him liberal, he's going to run into some issues because all he could talk about are the conservative positions that he holds. Take a look. Today, the left has gone so fucking far left so radical that the right are the ones that are celebrating comedians and celebrating Chappelle. And yeah, they had my back through all the crazy shit that happened mm -hmm. with me. It was Fox News that fucking had my back. Would it's, you ever think that they would be the ones to cape for you like, you know, 10 years ago? I'm so liberal. Yeah, like I talk I about it all the time. Like I, I say I am not a conservative. I'm not conservative. But I am pro Second Amendment uh -huh. and I am a hunter and I am a cage fighting commentator and I, you know, and I drink and I smoke cigars and I like to bow hunt. Uh, yeah. So there's a lot in there there's that's some, like, hey, crossover. yeah, but it's just being a human. But I'm a compassionate person and I believe that there's, a, boy, I'll tell you what though, one thing that happened during this pandemic was I, I opened, it opened my eyes about human nature. Like I used to be very pro universal basic income. My thought was, wouldn't it be great if you just had enough money so you could eat? and you could pay your rent, and then you could pursue what you wanted to. But the reality of human nature came fully into focus when I realized that one, when some people got all that money from the government, the COVID money, and then they got unemployment, uh -huh. they didn't want to work. I have a friend who has a restaurant, he, he could not get people to come back to work. Yeah. And so, one, one buddy of mine, uh, he, a bartender told him, I can come back to work, but I can only work for 20 hours a week, because that way I get unemployment. So he wouldn't work more than 20 hours a week so he could get free money. Mm -hmm. So he could have made more money, but he didn't want to because he didn't want to work. So he was getting that free money. And then my friend was like, what the fuck, man? Yeah. Like, okay. <laughs> like, and now he's, you know, he's always short-staffed and it's a, it's a mess. Yeah. Like, you see a lot of people 
that are, are that own businesses that have a hard time finding people work for them. So there's there's pros to that, right? The pros are people. Uh, it's it's a marketplace that favors the worker, so workers can ask for more money. So you're seeing a lot of places like bars and restaurants and stuff that have to pay more money per hour, which I guess is good as long as the restaurant can stay open. Notice how he didn't cite a single policy that makes him liberal. Very interesting. Now, the first thing that he said was so stupid, it almost made my head explode. The left has gone so fucking far left, so radical that the right are the ones celebrating comedians and celebrating Chappelle. Now, first of all, whenever somebody points out that the left has gone too extreme, notice that that person is completely brainwashed. Whoever says this, they're brainwashed, right? Because we're in a situation where the right half of that party half of republicans are quite literally against democracy they're plotting and scheming ways that they can send rogue, rogue electors to the electoral college to overturn future elections they're currently trying to find ways to gerrymander and do voter suppression so they remain in power in perpetuity studies have shown that the republican party has shifted to the right we have a democratic party that's comparable to conservative parties in Canada and the UK. So to say that the left has gotten too extreme, it just proves that you're brainwashed. You've been watching too much Fox News, too much right-wing propaganda. And of course, we know that Joe Rogan probably has. But, you know, he talks about comedy, and that's the reason why. That's evidence to him as to why we've gone too far to the left, uh, because... Uh, the right is the one celebrating comedians. Um, I'm sorry, but whether or not you like a particular comedian says nothing about your political ideology. And just because we don't like the transphobic jokes of Dave Chappelle or Ricky Gervais, that doesn't mean that we're against comedy. We just don't like your dumb transphobic jokes. I mean, before, I remember this video where Joe Rogan was uh, calling out Carlos Mencia on stage because he stole a joke from Bill Cosby. But now... These uh, comedians that Joe Rogan claims we don't celebrate are just stealing jokes from each other left and right. I mean, how many times have you heard the same variation of the, uh, well, if trans people can be trans, can I identify as an attack hel helicopter joke? I mean, on uh, Dave Chappelle's special, he literally said, oh, well, if a man can be a woman, can I be Chinese? Like, that's actually something that he said. So you all just have the same fucking jokes. You repeat it. And then you claim that we're triggered because we're not laughing. No, your jokes are stupid, you're punching down, and your material is shit. You know, as comedians uh, get older, as they grow more wealthy, they just become naturally out of touch. And sometimes they have to recalibrate and talk to people so they understand what the normal folk, what the peasants are thinking. But because we're not laughing doesn't mean that we're against comedy. There are plenty of comedians who I love. I love George Carlin. I like Bo Burnham. I like comedy. I just watched uh, David Cross's stand-up special and it's incredible. So it's not that we're against comedy. We're against dumb boomer comedy, okay? Now he says, I'm so liberal. Like I talk about it all the time. And then he goes on to state some areas that makes him um, conservative. For example, he loves gun culture and um, he's a cage fighting commentator. Again, I don't know what that has to do with political ideology, but if you're this uninformed about politics and ideology in general, I feel like maybe you shouldn't be commenting on politics as much as you do, but he's obsessed with it because I'm sure he's watching like Fox News or I don't know what the fuck he's watching, but I mean, you, you have the same talking points as the right, so clearly you're getting it from somewhere, perhaps Facebook, I don't know. But I mean, because you like 
cage fighting like i wouldn't necessarily deduce oh that's a that's a right winger but that's the exception you know he's mostly liberal but you know he's a conservative in a couple of areas he likes gun culture and he likes to talk about cage fighting i don't give a fuck what you talk about cage fighting boxing i, I don't give a shit okay that means nothing with regard to your political ideology he's such a fucking dipshit um now my favorite part is he gets to this point where he is seemingly going to explain why he is a liberal he says but i'm a compassionate person and i believe that and then he interrupts himself and says oh boy i'll tell you what though and then what does he do he goes on to attack workers using right-wing talking points so the point where he was going to validate his argument he interrupts himself to explain how conservative he is and then he talks about his uh his friend and how his friend who owns a restaurant, is this the CEO of McDonald's? Who are we talking about here? Because this is a very rich person. But anyways, his friend who owns a restaurant, uh, that led to him basically being against universal basic income because his friend who owns the restaurant had a worker who didn't want to work because they didn't want to lose their unemployment insurance. So because of that anecdote, Joe Rogan is saying, generally speaking, if you give people money just for free, they're not going to want to work. Except that is verifiably untrue because states who thought that same thing, well, they cut out those unemployment insurance benefits earlier than other states. And what happened? They didn't see growth in the job market. As Axios reported in September of 2021, states that ended federal unemployment benefits earlier this summer saw August job growth at less than half the rate of states that retained the benefits, according to new data released Friday by the Bureau of Labor Statistics. Leaders in the largely Republican-led states had insisted that the benefits were discouraging people from work and ended the assistance program early ahead of its planned expiration on September 6th. Economists analyzing the unemployment issue have seen little evidence that cutting off the benefits has provided a clear boost to local labor markets in part because of difficulty separating the influence of the payments from larger shifts in the labor force or of the potentially offsetting damage done by the pandemic, Reuters writes. So Joe Rogan did a 180 on a massive policy like universal basic income based on one anecdote that does not denote general applicability. Giving people money for free by the government doesn't make them less likely to work. In fact, if you had a universal basic income type program, people wouldn't just stay home. They'd realize, okay, I have more bargaining power in the labor market so I can get a job that I like and not just settle for one where I'm treated like shit. Uh, also, I have more room. So perhaps, you know, I can work a job and have even more extra money, put away some money, you know, uh, for a rainy day. But, you know, Joe Rogan doesn't realize this. One thing that is incredible about the pandemic that Joe Rogan doesn't realize, he thinks that the takeaway is that people are just lazy. But the takeaway is that workers for the first time in our generation are standing up and acknowledging that they actually do have leverage over their employers. And so if Joe Rogan's restaurant owning friend wants workers, if he wants to make a living off of that restaurant, he has to acknowledge that the people who he hires also want to make a living. They don't want to work full time for you if they also can't support themselves and at this point in time workers have the ability to go to a different employer who offers a more competitive wage and if you can't afford to pay that then i'm sorry joe rogan's friend you can't afford to hire another worker and the difference between getting money from the government through a universal basic income program and getting money through an employer is that there's stability that is inherent with a government check so if you're getting that $300 a week in unemployment insurance or $1,000 a month through universal basic income, it's always going to be there at the first of the month, whenever the date 
is designated, assuming we ever get this policy, which we won't. But, you know, it's always going to be there. You can count on it showing up in your bank account on the day when it always does. But with your employer, there's no stability there. You're in this abusive relationship with the power imbalance where your employer can at any time pull the rug out from under you and cut your hours like that. But Joe Rogan is a multimillionaire, so stability isn't even something that he can comprehend at this point. When you have millions and millions of dollars and your work, your job is just talking, then it's easy to get a little bit out of touch and call everyone else lazy. But I'm assuming that Joe Rogan wouldn't want to work for what? $12 an hour at a restaurant and deal with Karens during a pandemic where you're required by state law to tell them to put on a mask, but yet they're screaming at you and they're calling you uh, fucking a Soros shill. Joe Rogan wouldn't want to subject himself to that, but yet he expects everyone else to do these shitty jobs that are required to keep society running. No, you do the job, Joe Rogan. You're going to complain about workers being lazy. You go fucking get a job. If you're worried about your restaurant owner's uh, staff shortages, go fucking work. Why are you too good to work? right? Why are you too good to do these things that you expect other people to do? It's because he's comfortable and doesn't care. He's totally detached from the experience of normal people. So now he could just bark at the peasants when they don't get in line. And he thinks that that's going to resonate with people and thinks that it's going to prove that he's liberal. Of course not. Joe Rogan is out of touch. Joe Rogan is a conservative and he refuses to admit it because uh, I don't know. He's, I, I think mostly just kind of been either apolitical or liberal leaning but at this point in time for all intents and purposes you are a conservative and you know just saying that you're a liberal isn't going to make people think that you're a liberal because what you're saying substantively is deeply deeply conservative and it is propaganda at the behest of the right So a particular theme with regard to elections on this show is the way that super PACs spend millions and millions of dollars trying to defeat primary challengers to incumbent Democrats. And they spend this money always and only on progressives. We're seeing it with Jessica Cisneros in Texas. We saw it with Nina Turner in Ohio. And it's the same story every single time. But I also want to talk about the way that they are targeting incumbent progressives in Congress, trying to unseat them. So all that work that you did to elect these progressives, these groups are going to put millions and millions of dollars into these races to defeat them. And one of their main targets is Rashida Tlaib. And the reason why they're targeting her is deeply, deeply bigoted. But they're not saying that. So their agenda is very insidious, but they're targeting Rashida Tlaib specifically because she is a Palestinian woman. This is Islamophobia, but they're not putting that front and center, and they're trying to hide what their real agenda is. So as Brett Wilkins of Common Dreams explains, a new political action committee backed by a major New York hedge fund and Democratic politician turned cable news commentator Bakari Sellers plans to spend more than $1 million in a bid to oust progressive second-term Michigan Democrat Rashida Tlaib from the U.S. House of Representatives in November's midterm elections. Politico reports Urban Empowerment Action Pack announced a new campaign to elect solutions-oriented Democrats to Congress, sure. UEA PAC's premier race will be in Michigan's 12th congressional district where the group plans to spend upwards of $1 million on TV, digital, mail, radio, and print advertising to support Detroit City Clerk Janice Winfrey in her campaign to restore infrastructure, improve educational opportunities in the district, and support the Biden-Harris agenda in D.C., the new group said in a statement Friday. Politico does not mention UEA's biggest 
contributor. According to OpenSecrets.org, the New York-based hedge fund Third Point LLC, founded by multi-billionaire investor Daniel S. Loeb, has given $76,000 to the pack. And that's why I went with the Common Dreams article rather than the Politico article, because this is absolutely crucial context that we need as readers. Now, they're saying this really is about policy. We want someone who's solutions-based. And really, you know, Rashida Tlaib, she doesn't support the Biden-Harris agenda enough. What? She was fighting the hardest for Build Back Better. That's Biden's agenda. Build Back Better is the name of Biden's slogan. And these were things that she didn't want even. She wanted to go further, but she fought for the president's agenda because she knew that he's a moderate who wouldn't want to do big things like do free education, free healthcare. But yet they're saying, oh, well, you know, she just, she's not issue oriented enough, but really what they mean is she's too Palestinian. She's too Palestinian. Now they're not gonna say that to you, but they're gonna hide their bigotry, but we know what this is about. So the individual who's fundraising for this group, Bakari Sellers, this is an individual who is an apartheid supporter. In 2012, Bakari Sellers tweeted a picture of himself and far-right billionaire Sheldon Adelson, adding, reminder, just an example of how Israel can bring parties together. So Bakari Sellers is a hack who doesn't want anyone to speak out against the war crimes of the Israeli government. And you have the first Palestinian American in Congress and she is a vehement supporter of Palestinian human rights, and she's one of the few, perhaps the strongest opponent to Israeli war crimes against the Palestinian people. And Bakari Sellers just so happens to target this district because she's not solutions-based enough. We see right through you, Bakari. You're an Islamophobe, you're a bigot, and I'm not afraid to call you what you are. You approve of war crimes, and you think that anyone who dares to condemn apartheid should be ousted from Congress. But um, we're not gonna accept this. Now more from the article. According to Politico, Sellers, the former South Carolina state lawmaker and failed Lieutenant Governor candidate who regularly appears on CNN as a political analyst, is fundraising for UEA PAC. When asked about his endorsement of Winfrey, he told Politico's The Recast that we are hoping that we can have a candidate that doesn't have varying distractions. Sure, Bakari. Tlaib, who is a Palestinian-American and squad colleague, Representative Ilhan Omar, the first Muslim-American women elected to Congress, have been smeared as anti-Semites by both Republican and Democrat. Democratic lawmakers for their advocacy of Palestinian rights, their condemnation of Israeli war crimes, including apartheid and ethnic cleansing, and their willingness to criticize President Joe Biden over unconditional U.S. support for Israel. And that right there is the distraction, the quote-unquote distraction that Bakari Sellers is concerned with. He doesn't like that she condemns war crimes. Bakari Sellers thinks that Israel should be able to murder Palestinians with impunity and continue to expand settlements, occupy them in perpetuity, and anyone who speaks out should be ousted from Congress. Well, fuck you, Bakari Sellers. Absolutely not. Now, I wasn't thinking about contributing to Rashida Tlaib because she's not my representative, but now I want to donate to Rashida Tlaib, and I hope that the people watching this do as well. I hope that this galvanizes people because this cannot keep happening. The same thing happened with Nina Turner. She refused to pledge her loyalty to Israel, and she is critical of them for what they're doing to the Palestinian people and critical of the Israeli government, mind you, not the people. And, well, DMFI came in and spent millions of dollars against her. It's disgusting. 
but Rashida Tlaib is not backing down, and she's made it very clear she's not afraid at all. She tweeted out yet another Wall Street billionaire-funded super PAC running interference in local races, spending millions to peddle lies and distortions, pushing a pro-corporate agenda on a district that has consistently stood against the corporate greed hurting our families. It's flattering that billionaires who know nothing about our district are so scared of our movement. Voters have a choice, the candidate of Wall Street or the candidate of your street. Bring it. Yeah, and I love that. Never back down, never surrender to these absolute corporate ghouls. So if you have time, if you have a buck or two to spare, support Rashida Tlaib. Uh, if you can, if you live in that district, definitely canvas, uh, canvas for her. But don't let people like Bakari Sellers, who are Islamophobic bigots, bully people into silence. The fact that for the first time in my generation, perhaps first time ever, we have people in Congress speaking out on behalf of Palestinian human rights is incredible. I mean, you might have your criticisms of the squad, but the fact that they're so strong on this issue, that really says something. So we have to protect what we've accomplished, and that means keeping people in power who are speaking out on behalf of human rights and not going along with everyone else who's just okay with apartheid so long as money isn't spent against them or money is spent on their behalf. It's, it's disgusting, but that's why we've got to protect people like Rashida Tlaib. How dare you? You think we don't have hearts? No, I don't actually. That was Representative Louis Gomert at a House Judiciary Committee hearing on gun reform. And I'm going to play more of his unhinged rant for you in a moment, but I want to show you what set him off. Specifically, it was these comments from Representative Eric Swalwell. So who are you here for? Our kids or the killers? I'm here for people like Alex Navarro. She's a mom's demand action leader in the San Francisco Bay Area. And last week, after... I convened a meeting among my constituents and people like Fred Guttenberg and Dr. Joe Sacrin, an emergency room physician at Johns Hopkins. Alex Navarro told my constituents that her six-year-old daughter, after Uvalde, after seeing the images behind me, said to her, Mom, what picture are you going to use for me? What picture are you going to use for me? That's what children are asking their parents across America, because they don't believe they're going to come out alive. What picture are you going to use for me? We're supposed to be the protectors. We're supposed to be here for the kids. And so to my colleagues today who flew in town, came to work, got ready to argue, my question is, why did you come here for, at all? Why did you come here at all? If you're not here for the children, why don't you go to the funeral of the killer? Because that's the only place where the killer is being celebrated. We're here to get things done and protect our kids. What's your job? I yield back. And he is exactly right. Democrats have got to remind Republicans at every chance that they get that they cultivated this environment of fear, where we have to fear if children will be slaughtered at schools, where we have to fear if a gunman is going to walk into a movie theater or a grocery store and kill us. They've done this. 
their refusal to take even the most basic common sense measures to reduce gun violence that most of the country supports has specifically led to this moment and blood is on their hands and they need to be reminded of that. But when you remind them of what they've done, well, they react in the way that Louis Gohmert reacted. Take a look. To infer by rhetorical supposed questions, who are you here for? We must be here for the gunman is an outrage. How dare you? You think we don't have hearts? It's just that when we look at the things that you're doing and you're trying to do to America, we've seen the carnage. I mean, for heaven's sake, let's, let's take example. Democrats control the major cities that have the worst murder rates. That's right. Spare me the faux outrage, you fucking piece of shit. If you actually cared about dead children, you would take action. You would have taken action after Sandy Hook. And it's not just about, you know, caring for children when it comes to gun control, caring for children with regard to health care, food, education. You don't give a shit. You don't care about dead children. And he doesn't want to live with the uh, reality that he and his party has created for all of us. So what does he do? He lashes out. Again. If you wanted to take action, you had numerous opportunities to do just that, but he won't even do the bare minimum. Let me remind you about Louis Gohmert's voting record. Within the last four years, he's had four chances to support universal background checks that 90% of Americans support, and he voted against them every single time. But don't worry, he's going to tell you he took action in 2018 by voting for the Stop School Violence Act. But what specifically is entailed with the Stop School Violence Act, the so-called Stop School Violence Act? Well, more guns in school. Put armed guards in school. Potentially, you know, give teachers the uh, ability to have guns in schools. Hey, Louie, remind me what happened when we had good guys with guns show up at Uvalde. They waited around for an hour while kids were being slaughtered. So the solutions that he supported in the past aren't actually solutions. Republicans will talk about everything but guns. We've seen this countless times. It's uh, perhaps legalization of cannabis. This is what Laura Ingram is now saying. It's a lack of God in schools, mental health. Uh, it's doors. If you ask Greg Abbott and Ted Cruz, they don't want to address the actual problem, which is guns. Now, he tried to do a little bit of a uh, whataboutism with regard to Democrats who are in control of big cities and have higher murder rates. Well, this is not necessarily a good thing to bring up when you're against gun control, because ask yourself, Louis, why is the murder rates so high in these areas? Could it possibly be to, due to a lack of federal gun reform? And even if, you know, a city wants to take action, Republicans at every single level across the country have tried to stop them. And in fact, another Democrat, Mary Gay Scanlon, pointed this out. I, I do want to respond first to Mr. Gomer, and I'm sorry that he and many of his colleagues didn't think it was important enough to be here today. But I did want to respond to his allegation that Philadelphia's homicide well, rate the lady is yields, no. I will so not. I, can I will why not I yield. Get there my the gentlelady does time not yield. Gentlelady does not yield. The time is. Yours. I waited. For I wanted hours. to respond. Gentlelady does not yield. I wanted to respond to Mr. Gomert's allegation that Philadelphia's homicide rate is the fault of Democratic leadership in that city. 
Apparently, he doesn't understand that the Commonwealth's Republican legislature for decades has blocked city leadership from passing the types of common sense gun safety laws we are considering today. So to the broader question, like most Americans, I am sickened and sick to death of the gun carnage we experience in this country every single day. And she's right about that. Now, even if Republicans in that particular situation weren't blocking gun reform, the reason why federal gun control is necessary is because if you live in a state where you can't get a gun, well, you can simply cross state lines and purchase a gun in a state with more lax gun control laws. So this is why you have to homogenize every single state, make sure that the laws are consistent so crazy people don't get the guns. But Louis Gohmert, he doesn't even support the bare minimum. In fact, he's voted to support gun manufacturers, the actual makers of these devices of deaths. So it's just, it's ridiculous. But yet he's mad when the Democratic Party reminds him of the blood that's on his hands. Ridiculous. Now, look, let me be clear here. Both parties have blood on their hands in different respects. I think that members of the Democratic Party who don't support Medicare for all and let people die due to a lack of health insurance, they're guilty of deaths too. Republicans are also guilty of this, to be clear. When nobody in Congress does anything about the housing crisis or food insecurity, they're responsible for those deaths as well. But when it comes to gun reform, this lies squarely on the shoulders of Republicans who have blocked every single measure that could make even a small difference. Now, since we're talking about Louis Gohmert, um, you might have noticed that he was partaking in this meeting via Zoom. And that's because currently Congress is supposed to be on vacation and Republicans didn't want to hold this meeting. So they decided to phone it in. They had to be there, right? Because they had to espouse the talking points of their donors. But, you know, they decided to phone this in. And I'm glad that Mary pointed that out as well. But, uh, you know, I've got to talk about Louis Gohmert more broadly speaking, because, you know, seeing him overreact to that, that's necessary because this is somebody who is a very dumb person and that's not an ad hominem attack. I'm not just saying that to be mean. He literally probably has one of the lowest IQs in the country. This is the same individual who accused Obama of wanting to bring back the Ottoman Empire. And that's not even his greatest hit. Louis Gohmert recommended a way to address climate change. You know, rather than cutting greenhouse gas emissions, he literally asked someone at NASA if we could change the orbit of the fucking moon in order to address climate change. He said, I was informed by the immediate past director of NASA that they found that the moon's orbit is changing slightly and so is the Earth's orbit around the sun. We know there's significant solar flare activity, he said, and so is there anything that the National Forest Service or Bureau of Land Management, that's not BLM, by the way, Black Lives Matter, it's Bureau of Land Management can do to change the course of the moon's orbit or the Earth's orbit around the sun? Obviously, that would have profound effects on our climate. The moon is going to help us! Oh my god. Oh, he's so fucking stupid. I'm genuinely impressed that he's made it this far in life. How old is he? Like 60, 70, 75? The fact that he's survived this long is genuinely impressive to me. Like there have been multiple times, I'm assuming throughout his life, where he nearly died by forgetting to breathe spontaneously or by wandering into traffic not really realizing what he's doing or bumping, you know, his head and causing himself to get a concussion by tying his shoelaces together. The fact that he's made it this long is genuinely impressive. And the fact that he's a member of Congress 
should let everyone who doubts themselves realize that they are capable of anything. If Louis Gohmert can make it to Congress, you can do anything you want to. So, look, he's mad, but I don't care. He should be mad because he did this. It's on him. The blood is on his hands, and he has to live with himself every single day. So, Louis, die mad. You are risking their lives and my grandson's for the gun people? Are you kidding me? We've had a shooting in Des Moines. And here's one more thing. You and Senator Hearns, hearts and prayers, whatever. Why are you not down at those funerals in Texas? You seem to think it's okay to arm the whole country with 400 million guns, more than people in our country. So why are you down there mourning with those parents? The immunity won first. I don't, I don't know about all of you, but it's a sad commentary when we have somebody that can kill all the kids that are killed. Do you think that the safest place to go would be send your kids to school and be the safest place. And, uh, and uh, we all... Speak up. We all uh, feel very sad about all that stuff as well. And uh, when it comes to the issue of guns, as a result of what has happened after several shootings, in uh, this one particularly, uh, Senator Schumer has assigned Senator Murphy, and Senator McConnell has assigned Senator uh, Cornyn of Texas to uh, see what could be put together. Yesterday they had a meeting by Zoom, and they had very positive results that they think they've got a framework put together that something can be done to stop this violence through some gun legislation and through some uh, school safety issues. And so to answer your question, I'm going to wait until they report next week before I decide what I'm going to do. We just watched Republican Senator Chuck Grassley's constituents rip him a new asshole because he is refusing to do, well, anything with regard to gun control. And that was so, so satisfying to see. My favorite part was when he was speaking really quietly and somebody else speak up. And then he did. That gives me hope because these constituents and I think a lot of Americans across the country are beginning to realize that you are the boss of these politicians. It's not the other way around. You pay their bills for them. Your tax dollars fund their salaries. You are in control of them. And if they don't do a good job, you can reprimand them. You can even fire them. So I'm glad that people across this country are finding their voices. And it happens because everyone is just fed up. There's so many crises in this country. And when you see gun violence upon gun violence, just yesterday, there were three shootings happening simultaneously. One of them was a mass shooting at a hospital in Tulsa. So you see this happen time and again, and then these politicians, they show up to these town halls with the same talking points from their donors. And you could just see that 
the constituents have had enough. Now, this usually doesn't happen at these town halls with Chuck Grassley. If it did, I'd argue he probably wouldn't show up to them as frequently, but these more smaller, intimate town halls usually don't go that way. So I'd argue that he was probably caught off guard. As Iowa Starting Line reports, about 20 people were in the audience at his Louisa County Forum. Smaller crowds typically result in more subdued discussion at Grassley events, but that was not the case here. Multiple attendees pushed back, interrupted, and called out Grassley's role in blocking gun safety legislation from coming to the Senate floor. Several audience members pressed Grassley multiple times over what new gun safety measures he'd be open to supporting, but Grassley repeatedly avoided committing to supporting or opposing any particular idea. He insisted he wanted to wait to see what the legislative negotiations between Republican Senator John Cornyn of Texas and Democratic Senator Chris Murphy of Connecticut had produced a oh, bullshit. Grassley believed that withholding public judgment on any potential fix would help the negotiations advance what a load of horseshit. He defended his past vote to provide legal immunity to gun manufacturers, saying, I voted for it because I believe an honest business ought to not be sued for something that somebody else does. Attendees pointed out that almost no other companies are given similar protections. One man suggested banning the sale of AR-15s, which he described as they're there to kill people. Grassley noted that there's already 15 million AR-15s out in the country. The number may be closer to 20 million. You're still going to have AR-15s even if you stop selling them right now, Grassley said. The answer is not to do nothing, one woman in the back of the room yelled in response. You absolutely love to see it. And I've got one more clip for you, but I just want to discuss overall how, you know, they'll they'll ask him a question, he'll come up with some bullshit excuse, and then they will slap it down. Okay, so you can't take AR-15s out of circulation because there's too many, so then you do nothing. And understand, they're yelling this across the room at him. And he's sitting there very quietly, just taking it like the little cuck that he is, because deep down he knows his constituents are pissed and the Republican Party's refusal to do absolutely anything, it's reached a breaking point. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that they will take action, but it has pissed a lot of people off, and rightfully so. I mean, in the first clip there that we watched, the woman said, you're putting my granddaughter or my grandchildren at risk here. You know, if you have a, a family member who's a teacher, you're putting them at risk. So enough is enough. We're tired of the excuses. If you're not going to do anything, then just admit it. Stop with the bullshit excuses that you get probably directly from the gun industry. Now, um, one more clip that I want to play for you is really important because they talk about the need to ban AR-15s and they explain how it's important now because of the rise in violence that we're seeing from Republicans, because Republicans, quite frankly, are fucking crazy. And an example that was given by one of Grassley's constituents was how they stormed the Capitol. So take a look at the way that they press him. And this was really, really just great to watch. I'm gonna look directly at you and be kind of harsh. You guys need to get it together. Mm -hmm. Because if you don't get it together, there's some people out amongst us that are gonna become more violent. Yep. And we are yep. this close. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, look at the Capitol. One more, one more yep. election like we just had yep. and the sh shenanigans that have gone on for two years with people. Well, I'm not sure whether it was a fair election or not a fair election, or I don't know if the votes counted or didn't count. That stuff's got to stop. Yep. Yeah, I work the polls, and I hear people come in there to vote and oh, say, can I take is that machine going to take my vote? <laughs> Skeptics. Yeah, just look. Can, can I take off where you said find the center? Because that's what's absolutely necessary in the United States Senate when you got 50 Republicans, 50 Democrats, and it takes 60 votes to move a bill. No, it doesn't. <laughs> See, you make it do that. Then 
Well, that's what the rules of the Senate have been. Who cares about the rules? It's not in the Constitution. But but now you've hamstrung yourself with the rules. Well, right. But, uh, You're letting the attorneys run the show. Right. Every single concern that they brought up was absolutely valid. This is Chuck Grassley's party. So as somebody who's been in Congress, in the Senate for a very long time, he can try to steer the ship in a different direction, but he's not doing that. And they're mad at him. And my favorite, favorite part, uh, it takes 60 votes to move a bill. This is what he said to his constituents, but they were not having it. So uh, they said, no, it doesn't. You make it do that. You make it do that. And I wish that somebody would show up to a Democratic Party uh, member's town hall and say the same thing. Because Democrats say the same thing, to be fair. But this is something that they have chosen to allow. They like to use the 60-vote majority vote as a, th as a sort of excuse. Oh, that's the threshold that we can't meet. Except it's bullshit. You choose to have that rule. And as one of his constituents pointed out, that rule isn't in the Constitution. So either you're going to take action or protect us, or you're going to continue to come up with these bullshit excuses, and you'll understand how increasingly we're getting fed up. So that town hall right there honestly gave me so much hope because citizens across this country are finally finding their voice. Workers across this country are rising up and demanding rights. They're unionizing. And we're seeing more and more at these town halls that they're not taking it anymore they're done with these bogus excuses they're done with the same talking points we've been we've been hearing for literally decades now they're done they're fed up and now they're screaming at their senators if you don't like being screamed at you know chuck grassley ted cruz anyone else well you can thank yourself because you are the reason why it's gotten to this point you have refused to take action and now people are so pissed that they feel as if they have to berate you to your face in order to get you to wake the fuck up but the problem is you can't get them to change their point of view with words because these are politicians who are bought and paid for by specific industries they don't represent those constituents right there they represent their donors and that's what americans are also waking up to but it's just really nice to see them slap down any talking point that's brought up i love it nobody's buying the bullshit anymore and we're fucking pissed good i want to see more of this Hi everyone, I'm here with Michaela Wilkes running in Maryland's 5th Congressional District against House Majority Leader Steny Hoyer. Um, and she's here to talk about her campaign. Michaela, welcome back to the show. Hi, thanks for having me back on. It's a pleasure for sure. Really excited to have you on. Uh, so the primary campaign is uh, it's well underway and the primary date is July 19th. And I thought it would be really excellent to talk to you because there's a lot of people who are vocalizing widespread um, anger with the Democratic Party uh, establishment. So talk through why you decided to challenge uh, one of the leaders of the Democratic Party, Steny Hoyer. Um, yeah, so I'm, for people who don't know my story, um, I chose to challenge Majority Leader Hoyer because of my own life experiences and just seeing how, you know, policy affects our everyday lives. Um, I was affected by policy by being thrown into the school to prison pipeline um, when I should have been given resources to deal with the mental health 
mental health issues that I was dealing with after the loss of one of my family members. I was thrown into jail because I could not afford to pay court fees um, and traffic tickets, essentially being in traffic debt. And so, um, you know, I realized that poverty was criminalized and that there is an entire system that allows these injustices to happen over and over again to so many people in our communities. Um, and I specifically chose to challenge Majority Leader Hoy because he is the representative of my district. He's in a position of leadership um, in the House of Representatives um, on the Hill. And so he is in a position to do something about it. Um, but instead, he, you know, he shows for his corporations. He refuses to, you know, put progressive legislation on the floor for a vote. And I always say people talk about Mitch McConnell's graveyard. But what about Steny Hoyer's graveyard and all of the policy that we could have voted on to enact fundamental change in communities across the country? Yeah, yeah. And that's that's great reasons to run. You've seen the struggle, you've lived the struggle. And that's one thing that really differentiates candidates like you from these corporate Democrats. I mean, I don't think Steny Hoyer has ever wondered a day in his life if he's going to be able to put food on the table or pay rent. So to have real people in Congress, that really does make all the difference. And one thing about leadership that I think that a lot of people are rightfully frustrated about, it's not just that they don't put forward progressive policies, but they actively campaign for the enemy. And the biggest example that everyone is pointing to is how Steny Hoyer, along with Nancy Pelosi and James Clyburn, are endorsing an anti-choice pro-gun Democrat over a progressive woman. So can you talk through, you know, this widespread anger that people are feeling with the Democratic Party establishment, leadership in particular, and why you think it's justified? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, you know, with regards to, you know, Jessica Cisneros and Henry Cuellar um, and Steny Hoyer's decision, along with Nancy Pelosi and Clyburn to still support, you know, him as a representative. And I know um, I myself was enraged when I read the story uh, when Hoyer said that uh, being pro-abortion or, or being pro-choice shouldn't be a litmus test for being a Democrat. Um, and, you know, if you're just a regular person, okay. But when you are a person who has the authority to shape policy, who has the authority to impact people by legislation on a federal level, um, when you're someone who's whose opinions can affect my body and my choice to do what I want to do with it, then it absolutely has to be a litmus test. Um, and that's just my opinion. And the reason why right now it is very, very, very detrimental and, you know, and why I, a lot of people are, you know, extra enraged at Democratic leadership's support of Henry Cuellard is because what we're seeing right now with regards to Roe v. Wade and people like Henry Cuellard and people that support, um, you know, people who are in office, whether you're Democrat or Republican, that support, you know, this pro-birth. Um, this is the beginning. You know, this we're on the cusp of what is the worst to come. And mm -hmm. so you can't stand when you can't stand up for bodily autonomy. Think about what's going to come next. Think about all the other decisions decided by the Supreme Court that could be overturned because Congress, after decades and decades, has not codified anything into law, has not protected it in any way. And so all of this is at risk. 
And so, of course, people are going to be enraged because we are back here in 2022 like we are in 1972 and 1973, once again, fighting for people's rights to their own privacy and to their own body. You didn't stand up for regular people during COVID to get the access to healthcare. You didn't stand up for people during COVID to end the eviction moratorium and went for unanimous consent knowing that it would inevitably, inevitably fail. And now you're not standing up when it comes to people's rights, um, to, when it comes to people's privacy and reproductive rights. And so everyone is definitely entitled to be mad as hell, not only at the not only at democratic leadership, but the democratic party in itself. Yeah, yeah, well put. Um, one thing that really is frustrating is how there's all these crises, you know, in this country, and you've talked about these on numerous occasions. This is all you talk about, essentially, as a very substantive candidate. Um, but it seems like nothing can ever happen because of gridlock in Congress. Now, you can attribute that to Republicans, the parliamentarian, the filibuster, either way. Nothing happens. But one thing that really put everything into perspective was, I think, how there were a couple of vigils in front of Supreme Court justices' homes. And then a couple of days later, like that, the Senate rushed through, basically, uh, by unanimous consent, this uh, law that would allow them to have protection 24-7. And nobody asked the question, how are we going to pay for that like they do for progressive policies? But furthermore, uh, there was no fight there. So when it comes to them, Oh, they get things done immediately. But when it comes to protecting women's bodies, children in elementary schools, um, nothing happens. In fact, as we record this, Congress is on vacation currently. So can you kind of talk through this growing rift in the Democratic Party between the corporate wing and the uh, progressive wing? Because I think that now more than ever, it feels like we've all been proven, right? Like you've been at this for a couple of years. And I feel like after seeing Joe Biden's presidency for a, a year and a half, I kind of feel like we've all been vindicated. So talk through these differences because mainstream media will pretend as if, oh, there's no differences. There's just policy disagreements. But the difference is night and day. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. The difference is definitely night. It, it, it's definitely night and day. And the mainstream media does absolutely act like everything is hunky dory. We're OK. You know, we um, have the Democratic trifecta. We have the Senate. We have the House. We have the presidency. But nothing has fundamentally changed. You know, we were promised a cancellation of student debt. We don't have that. But yet we're sending or trying to send, you know, billions of dollars over to Ukraine. Right. You know, when we have black and brown people at the border being arrested just last summer, or earlier this year, there were black Haitians being whipped by Border Patrol agents simply for seeking asylum, simply for seeking safety, the same thing that the Ukrainians are currently trying to do. Um, and so I think it's completely irresponsible for one, for the mainstream media to paint it that way, but it's also completely irresponsible for any elected officials, um, especially in Congress and, and the presidency to become lax. And shame on Congress for being on vacation when we had the mass unaliving of black people and the black communities by someone, by white supremacists who traveled hundreds of miles to do this. Um, and that planned this on social media, you know, and shame on them also for going on vacation after almost 20 children died at school, you know, at the hands of a mass shooter. And so, um, 
the difference is absolutely night and day. The same problems that, but the thing is that the same issues that we're having now are the same issues we were having when Trump was president. There's mm -hmm. no difference. There's absolutely no difference. And when we talk about the corporate Democrats and the progressive Democrats, um, I'm probably not going to be liked for this, but I think that both could try harder. I appreciate, you know, the progressives that are in Congress that are, you know, are doing what they need to do. They're fighting the good fight. I understand that there's pressure, but we need to fight harder. You know, we already know, you know, the 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 progressives that are in Congress, you know, we ran, you know, they ran off of calling people out by name, off of being bold. You know what I'm saying? And coming in and, you know, and vowing to fight for us, which, you know, to an extent they are, but we can't stop calling them out by name. You know, we have to continue to be bold um, and we have to support candidates, you know, that are running in other races that, you know, and what I see a lot with like a lot of the progressives is that they support, you know, uh, primary challengers, uh, but mainly kind of like the safe ones, like, you know, challengers. Mm -hmm who are running against other dams that are against abortion because that's problematic. But it's as equally problematic that there are people in leadership that have primary challengers that are progressive, that you know the incumbents don't support Medicare for all or environmental justice. All of these things are problematic, regardless of which may seem controversial or not. But nothing is ever going to change if we don't try to change it ourselves. And if those are in the position to be able to do it, to help others. Um, mm -hmm. And with regards to the corporate dims, I mean, I'm pretty sure you and your viewers know, um, you know, the massive amounts of money that they take. Um, and how that translates into policy and how that translates into underserved communities, not getting the resources that they need, because should we pass those policies, that takes money away from the very people that uh, funds the corporate campaigns. Yeah, I'm really glad that you brought that up about progressives in Congress, because it feels really frustrating because they know how difficult it is to get their names out there. I've brought them on my programs before they were in Congress, you know, and tried desperately to to help them with that. But, you know, you're right. They, they end up endorsing these candidates who are very likely to win because it's a high profile race, but they don't look at important races enough. Like your race is one of the most important races because you're taking on Democratic Party leadership, which one, everybody is too afraid to do. Uh, and two, it's important because Democratic Party leadership is the problem currently. They're the reason why we're not doing well, why the Democratic Party is dying, for lack of a better word. So it's really important that we have progressives who don't lose that will to fight once they get to Congress. And it seems like I, I don't want to like say that, you know, the progressives in Congress are completely useless, not at all. But the problem is that it feels as if the desire to fight goes away once they're elected. Now, I don't know if there's like some sort of a magical spell where, where you walk into the building, like you just change immediately. Uh, I'd argue it's, it's the environment, it's the culture, right? Uh, but I'm curious. So it's the Democratic Party is a huge issue. Um, but you are somebody who I believe you've endorsed uh, multi-party reform in the past. And so there's a piece of legislation that's kind of just been floating around Congress for, for years now. Um, I've been screaming about it at the, at the top of my lungs. It was previously H.R. 4000. To my knowledge, it hasn't been reintroduced in this latest session. But basically, it's called the Fair Representation Act. And what this would do is it would uh, change our districts from single member districts where everyone has one representative to 
three to five representatives, depending on the population. Uh, on top of that, it ends gerrymandering by uh, making sure that all of these these districts are drawn by independent commissions, which is something the Democrats did try to do, to be fair. Um, and basically, it expands voting access, more broadly speaking. So in Congress, uh, would you be a fighter for electoral reform to make sure that we don't have to keep voting for these same two parties because a lot of people feel so frustrated because it's like, okay, if I don't vote for Democrats, then that's one less vote for the person who stands between, you know, Congress and the fascist. So it's like this never ending cycle where you just feel voters getting more and more frustrated and, and checking out. So would you support that type of legislation? Yeah, I absolutely would. And to the point of single member districts, no one person should have that much power. Yeah. And th no diversity comes from that. I don't understand. I mean, you know, I see how many constituents we have in our district. And I'm like, well, damn, like that's a big <laughs> right. job for one person. And it's like, you know, you want to have as much representation as you can for the people um, that are part of your constituencies. And so, hell yeah, that would definitely be something that I would support um, along with like open primaries. I can't tell you mm -hmm. how many people that I speak with that say, oh, I want to vote for you, but I'm an independent. So you're not going to be on my ballot. And it's just like, that's not fair. Not only for yeah. like the voters, but also the candidates. You know, I've met some pretty bomb ass, you know, Green Party candidates, mm -hmm. you know, uh, one in our district, his name is Pat Elder. And, you know, the ballot access is limited. You have to get all these signatures before you even qualify. Um, and so, yeah, I think that anything that provides voters with more choice and anything that can diversify um, the way that we represent our communities is always going to be an A plus for me. And I would definitely yeah. That's why I love you and love your campaign, because uh, candidates like you, you always emphasize democracy, which is really important. And, and I think that people just assume, well, we're a democracy and that's how democracy works. Sometimes you're annoyed, sometimes you're happy. But no, actually, our democracy quite literally is incapable of fulfilling the needs of, of people, basic needs. I mean, we have an electoral college that makes it so that way if you win the popular vote in the presidency, you might not get elected. That happened multiple times in our lifetimes. You know, we have this system where most of the policies that get rid, uh, passed into law are policies that were created by interest groups or business elites. So you have to expand democracy and not just accept that this is how it's always going to be. And there's too many Democrats like that who refuse to, to change. So real quick before we leave, can you just give us the quick rundown of your platform? Everyone who's watching this is probably familiar with you and already knows it's an incredible platform, more policy substance than anyone in the Democratic Party uh, or the Republican Party, but that's kind of obvious. Um, and on top of that, let us know uh, what we can do to support you if uh, you know we're in that district. Can we... Uh, do canvassing. If we're not in that district, can we phone bank? Let us help you. So uh, let us know what to do. Absolutely. Um, but first, I want to start off by saying that I cannot take credit for the entire our entire policy platform. We have a wonderful team and we're very diversified um, who have all put on our thinking, our thinking caps to put this platform together. So I would not feel right taking 100 percent credit for that. Um, but to answer your question, um, we have a lot of policies, but I would say our main focal point is to invest in our communities and put people first over profit, to not treat um, any human right 
as a commodity. You know, we believe in a universal healthcare system, you know, uh, under Medicare for all. We believe in environmental justice um, and racial justice by enacting, you know, enacting a Green New Deal, um, which is which isn't even a bill. It's a resolution that they don't want to put on the floor. Right, Um, right. Um, and so, you know, we want to invest in public schools and especially from what we just saw, specifically the infrastructure of public schools and reimagine what public school safety means. It doesn't mean more police in schools, but it means actually providing the resources that these communities need. And if we focus on infrastructure, you know, they like to use the example, well, what about if a mass shooter comes into the building? Well, what if we can prevent them from even being able to access the building? Um, so we want to dismantle the school to prison pipeline in that matter as well. Um, we want to end homelessness, fully function, fully fund the Section 8 program um, to deal with the housing insecurity crisis that we have. So many food deserts. Um, one of the things that our campaign wants to do, um, you know, when I am elected, um, if the universe allows, is that we have local, locally owned grocery stores funded by government grants that employ, you know, the residents in that area that have the same quality food as Whole Foods, but at a much cheaper rate to get rid of food deserts and provide more healthy food options within our communities. Um, but those are just a few of the things um, that our campaign are, is highlighting a few of the top issues. But I would definitely encourage those um, um, inquiring minds to check out our website, which is just MichaelaWilkes.com. Um, and if anyone would is interested, you know, after uh, seeing this interview um, and helping out the campaign, our primary is on July the 19th and early voting starts on July 7th. Um, if you're in the area, we canvass every Saturday and Sunday. Um, we phone bank every Monday and Wednesday. Um, and if you're not in the area, phone banking is something that you can do remotely. Um, so yeah, I would definitely encourage, you know, folks who um, want to be a part of a movement um, that want to create fundamental change, but um, maybe, you know, don't know where to start. Our campaign is a great place to start. Well, Michaela, thank you so much. We're rooting for you, obviously. Viewers, you heard the website. Uh, check her out. Chip in a buck or two. And if you have time, please sign up to phone bank. And if you're in that area, absolutely vote for Michaela Wilkes. It's not even a question. Easiest decision you'll ever make. Michaela, thank you so much for coming on the program. Thank you. Appreciate you. Want more? Visit humanistreport.com for links to our full catalog of videos on YouTube, Means TV, and Facebook. You can also find audio versions of the show on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, iHeartRadio, and other major podcast platforms. And before you go, consider supporting the show on Patreon or through YouTube memberships. You'll get early access to most videos, invites to monthly live chats with Mike, and you'll be thanked by name at the start of the next episode. There are other ways to support the show. You can like, subscribe, turn on notifications, and share our content on social media. Thank you for watching.